Parents, I've noticed that some of you are ducking. VBS is done. Wow, that was fun. Hey, Baptist, it's okay to have fun. That was fun. Wow, so I want to I wanna start by just saying thank you to everyone who helped in some way, either with their time, with their treasures, or with their talents. So let's give those people a round of applause, if you would. We are just so blessed to have your children to be a part of our ministry. They were so sweet this whole week. Um, just a wonderful time, opportunity to sow seeds and to water those seeds. It is, of course, our prayer that God gives the growth. Uh, parents, there's no, no better place for children to grow than in Christian homes. And maybe you have not understood that. Maybe you haven't taken that responsibility seriously. I know how hard it can be uh, with multiple children. It can be very difficult to always put forth a Christ-centered example. But it is essential that you raise up a child in the way of the Lord. So that when they are old, they'll love him and love his church. Well, I want to begin with a word of prayer as we conclude this small little series on God's providence. Would you pray with me this morning? David said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God, impress upon us the importance of the responsibility of living Christ-like lives before our children. The Bible says you are the heavenly father. You are to us the perfect parent. In our homes we are to emulate you. Perhaps it's the result of our failures in the home why so many children today grow up and leave the church. Would that our parents would reflect the glory of Christ. In how they live their lives. Holy Spirit, you have to produce that in these homes. We saw all these beautiful children, God. You've given us beautiful children inside and out. God, you've placed this church here in this community. We don't know why you've done that, Lord, but we're so blessed to be here. We're so grateful for it. We pray, Lord, that we would see this community began to change right here in this very church, in this very school, as people, families, turn from sin and turn to you to build Christian homes. Lord, continue to give us love for one another, where the world would divide parent from child, races and genders. Help us to be united in Christ and to be that lighthouse to be a beautiful light in the midst of a very dark world. Lord, you do all these things through us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting this morning, we're concluding a, a series on the topic of God's decree. We're going through a series called Basic Christianity. 
it is properly basic to be a Christian that we understand just what it means to be a Christian. Words have definitions and have meaning, and certainly the word Christian has meaning. And one of the worst things that we have done today in our postmodern paradigm has been to eradicate the idea of absolute meaning. Words have an absolute definite meaning. And the word Christian means someone who has believed the gospel and follows Christ. It's not one only and not the other. It's not the other and not the other one. We, as followers of Christ, accept the true teaching and gospel of Christ and live by that teaching in the world. And we believe that, and as such, it is important that the true knowledge of the Christian faith be understood by everyone so that we may live like Christ in our daily lives. Some of us, many of us, are excited about God, but it is very true that many of us don't know just who God is. And it is our goal to educate Christians and the world on who God is. So we are talking about God's decree and we're concluding the first two things that we learned was that God has decreed from before the foundation of the world everything that will ever come to pass from the greatest to the least, from the most significant to what you and I might see as insignificant, that the bird that falls to the ground does not do so apart from the hand of your heavenly father and that the very hairs on your head, the, what we might consider minutia and insignificant details, God knows, God decrees. Yes, God has decreed that some of you be bald. Why did you say that's right? You have beautiful hair, Moises. I guess you're mocking them. Okay, I got you. But I would say that this issue of God's decree really hits home for us when we ask the question, why does evil happen? The big doctrine, because it's a big God, we're talking about God decreeing everything from the greatest to the least, and if we are saying everything, we're saying all things, and that includes even evil. I use the word evil in a way that is synonymous with the word suffering. It can also be diabolical in the sense of evil or malicious behavior, moral evil. But there are natural evils. Tornadoes are natural evils. Earthquakes leading to tsunamis are natural evils. Bacterial infections leading to death. Cancer, HIV, and AIDS are all natural evils. They occur and they affect rich and poor alike. They affect good and bad people alike. They affect every gender and every race alike. They are natural evils. And so that word evil is more than just what is diabolical, what is moral. It also means that which is suffering in the world. It is not a good thing when an 
Over 100,000 people are wiped out by a tsunami. That is evil. It is not what God intended. Not in the sense of what God's will of his disposition, what he desires to happen, happen. But God nevertheless decreed it. This morning I have one simple goal. It is this. It is to convince you to be at peace with this fact. That God is good and evil happens. That is the biblical answer. I don't have a big answer today. Because tornadoes ravage cities that are violent and high in crime. Just like they ravage small Bible Belt towns. I know we watch the 700 Club. Stop watching it, by the way. And we hear Pat Robertson tell us that the reason why New Orleans was flooded was because of the wickedness in that city. Maybe. But what happens when churches are destroyed with Christians sitting in them? What happened when God put his own son, perfect and spotless, on a cross. You see, evil occurs for all of us. Suffering occurs for all of us. This is, after all, a problem of evil. Well, we want to respond to this problem of evil correctly. And we tend to make three mistakes when we attempt to respond to the tragedies of life. The first mistake that we make is we reject God's existence. The second mistake that we make is that we believe that God must be angry at us. And the third mistake is that we believe sometimes that evil happens because God isn't really in control of all things. All three of those are mistakes. But there is a right way to approach this problem, this reality of evil and suffering in the world. And it is this. Because the Bible does not give us a complete answer for why God allows evil to exist, we must never charge him with evil and humbly trust him in all things. The Bible never gives us a full-on answer for why wickedness and evil occurs. But what does that have to do with our posture before him? The biggest distinction that we have to keep in mind as Christians always is the distinction between the creator and the created thing. The Bible is not about man, it is about God. The chief goal of human existence is to love God, it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is not to wrap yourself up in your own desires. We are to trust God, though, when evil occurs. And we are to never charge him with evil. I want to handle these mistakes one by one. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I give you a definition or description of the reality of God's existence and the existence of evil. This is the London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. It's almost word for word of the Westminster Confession. And here's what it says. It says, the almighty power 
unsearchable wisdom. That is that God's knowledge of the right way to behave is beyond anything you or I could ever understand. I heard Stephen Fry one time say, why would a good God put bone cancer in children? Now listen to me before we crucify Stephen Fry. Stop for a moment and understand bone cancer in children is a hard reality. But it's real. When my brother's son went into the emergency room because his platelets dropped significantly, I saw child after child coming out of Vanderbilt Hospital, bald, because they were going through chemotherapy. That's a hard reality. But the confessing church has maintained that God's wisdom is unsearchable. If God is past finding out, his ways are past finding out, it means that you must humble yourself before him and acknowledge that you, the created thing, don't know more than the creator. If I can give a, a, a basic analogy, children, your parents know more than you. It's not simply that they are, uh, that they are smarter. Intelligence really has nothing to do with it. It is the scars of life and the gray hairs on their head that is their crown of wisdom. It is not a competition. It is a fact. They have been there. They have been the, the, the victims. They know what it is to be hurt. They know what it is to commit sin. And they are trying to save you from that as much as possible. And no, you won't know until you do your own just how bad this life is or can be. But the wise child simply submits to the will of his parents even when he or she does not understand why they require them to do what they do. But God is not only unsearchable in his wisdom, he's infinite in goodness. That means there's no limit to the goodness of God. So far, manifest themselves in his providence. We see it all throughout the world. We don't understand how God directs and disposes all things for his glory, but he does. It goes on to say that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. That's big. Because we don't get God off the hook with the problem of evil. At least God doesn't do that in his word. The Bible tells us that evil occurs because God decreed for it to occur. I don't want that to be a problem for you this morning. I want that to be a comfort for you this morning. That while all things may not be good, God works all things together for good. And so why that might not be good, no one loves discipline when it's happening to them, but it works for our good. But only to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. To those who don't love him and who are not called according to his purpose, it is his just wrath upon them. It goes on to say that in that, not by a bare permission, 
God doesn't simply pull himself back. God is in control. He could have very easily stopped the evil that occurred in Job's life, but he didn't. It was not simply his permission. God, in some mysterious way that is past our finding out, because his wisdom is unsearchable, permitted Job to suffer gravely, which almost he most wisely and powerfully bounds and otherwise orders and governs. And in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. In other words, God is holy. God is absolutely good. God has decreed everything that come to pass. This is a manifold dispensation over time and time. We see this. But we must maintain this posture. As the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures. And not from God who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. In other words, the confession is saying this. God is in control of evil. Even the actions of individuals in such a way that he is neither the author nor the approver of sin. You say, how can that be? Right. Remember this morning and do not lose sight. My goal is not to convince you of how this can be possible, but to simply put you at peace with the fact that it is. This is the way, after all, that the Holy Spirit guides us to deal with suffering in the light of a loving God. Well, let's look at these really quickly. Mistake number one, people deny God's existence because evil exists. Michael Peterson, a philosopher at Asbury Seminary, says this. He says, something is dreadfully wrong with our world. An earthquake kills hundreds in Peru. A pancreatic cancer patient suffers prolonged, excruciating pain and dies. A pit bull attacks a two-year-old child. That just happened recently. Angrily ripping his flesh and killing him. Countless multitudes suffer the ravages of war in Somalia. A crazed cult leader pushes 85 people to their deaths in Waco, Texas. Millions starve and die in North Korea as famine ravages the land. Horrible things of all kinds happen in our world. And that has been the story since the dawn of civilization. Would anybody deny Dr. Peterson this right to say such a thing? Is that not what we see on the nightly news every day? It's no longer that Miss Mabel's cat is stuck in the tree and the firemen came and were able to get her out. We see the wickedness of man on full display. So much so that none of us should ever, ever say that man is basically good. What evidence do you have? Dr. Peterson goes on, he says, something's dreadfully wrong with us. This is an awful thing for us to realize. J.L. Mackey, a philosopher, an atheist philosopher, came to this conclusion. He says, in light of all of this wickedness, this evil that we have seen, it can be shown not that religious beliefs lack rational support, but that they are positively irrational. That several parts of the essential theological doctrine 
are inconsistent with one another. In other words, what this atheist philosopher is doing is he is simply saying it is logically impossible for God to exist the way Christians believe he does and evil to exist. His argument looks like this. It goes, number one, since evil exists, God cannot exist. The first premise is this. If God is all-powerful, he can destroy evil. If God is all-knowing, he knows how to destroy evil. If God is all-loving, he wants to destroy evil. Yet evil exists. Therefore, God does not exist. This is the most, one of the most greatest or one of the best arguments there are against the existence of God. And it was this way up until a philosopher by the name of Alvin Plantinga showed us a very simple, logical thing to do with an argument. And that is to simply add another premise. The way a logical argument works is this. Premises, each one of these points is a premise, and it's either true or false. All premises are either true or false. And if the premises are true, and the premises or the conclusion logically follows from the premises, then the argument is not only valid, it is sound, it is irrefutable. But that does not mean we can't offer up extra premises. So we add the three that we have, and we add a fifth one, namely that God has a good reason for permitting evil to exist. You'll note that first, God's permission thwarts any attempt to destroy his power, because at any moment, God can, in his power, destroy evil. We know that God is all-knowing, and notice that this premise acknowledges that since it names that there is a reason for permitting evil, a reason that is unsearchable to us. And third, that God is all-loving. It is not simply a matter of fact, but it is a good and holy reason for permitting evil to exist. And the conclusion here is this, therefore evil exists and God has a good reason for allowing it to exist. All this demonstrates is that the logical problem for evil is really no problem at all. It is completely logical for God to exist and evil to exist. This adds additional premises. And whenever we do this, it demonstrates that this is consistent with a biblical revelation of the God in Scripture, who works through the evil and suffering of men in order to accomplish his purposes. Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20 to his brothers, who attempted to destroy him, who were, would it be but for one brother, salvation would have killed him, going through many years and years of suffering because of his brothers, says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This response to the logical problem of evil is completely in consistency with the Bible 
and its revelation of how God works in the midst of evil. I want to look at our, I want to look at our, excuse me, our second mistake that we make. When people experience evil or suffering in their own lives, they may assume that God is angry at them. So that if something bad happens to us, it's because God is upset with you. That God is getting back at you. Now I want to be very careful that before I make this point that we understand that there are plenty of reasons that things, bad things have happened to you in your life that are caused by you. But nevertheless, many of these things are not caused by you. A person is diagnosed with a serious illness. A parent's child falls into trouble with the law. A marriage ends in divorce. A person loses his or her job. A person is turned down for a promotion. A tornado devastates a town. And on and on we go. Some people are poor, some people are oppressed. And we assume that all of these things are the result of our evil and that God is angry at us. But Luke says this. There was a story where some people came to Jesus to try and make sense of why evil happened to good people. And here's what happened. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans, him, that is Jesus, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What happened was these people were offering their sacrifices at the temple and Pilate sent his soldiers to slaughter and murder them. And their blood was mingled with the sacrifice's blood. So not only did they lose their life, but they lost the efficacy of their sacrifice. Pretty bad thing. Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? The assumption from the questioner is that the reason these people suffered is because they had done something wicked in their life. And we assume this all the time. Had he just been a good boy, those bad things would have never happened to him. But that's not the case. And Jesus shows us much. His point is simply that we are all worthy of the worst that life can throw at us. And God owes us no peace and serenity. None whatsoever. He goes on. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, some of you are going to be slaughtered. Some of you are going to die in a car accident. Some of you are going to die of cancer. Some of you are going to die of a heart attack. Some of you are going to die of old age. But none of that is the result of their sins. You are all going to die. Don't worry about what led to it. Worry about being right when it inevitably comes. He says, what about these? What about those 
18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus, in other words, says, I got one better for you. What about the people who died for no reason at all? No murderer was there. It's just bad engineering. No. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. The Bible is clear on this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Stop comparing yourself to others. God tells you that sufficient is the evil of the evil unto each day. In other words, that you as an individual can destroy yourself and others every single day. Don't worry about the sin that others have committed. Worry about the sin you're committing and can commit by virtue of being a fallen human being. This is a harsh teaching. But it is important to note that our ideas and our choices and our actions all have consequences to them. And this is not necessarily God getting even with you. It is simply the result of the law of cause and effect. Well, I want to look really quickly at what the book of Proverbs teaches us about our choices, our choices and their consequences. Proverbs 10.1, just to read a couple, and Proverbs is filled with this. This is what the book is about. It is a book about cause and effect, or our choices and their consequences. It says, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, when your parents, children, adults, when your parents are constantly fighting with you, it's not God getting back at you. It might just be that you're an unruly child. Start there. One of my favorite meetings as a teacher, this is probably why I'm no longer a teacher anymore, but one of my favorite meetings ever, a mother brought her child in. This child had given me a hard time. Listen, kids, when your teacher tells you that we love all our students, they're lying. They might love you, but they don't like you. So this was wonderful. I love this. I don't know. I just wasn't feeling good that day. She came in, and this guy had been giving me, and he had gone home and played the victim to mommy. And mommy came in, and she was mad because I was picking on her son. Picking on her son. She started off by saying, my son doesn't think you like him. And I looked at that mom and I said, I don't. <laughs> Why would I like him? He lies about me. He mocks me. He lies to my face, doesn't do his homework, disrespects me, is insubordinate. Why would I like that behavior? You don't like that behavior. Why would I? That is foolish. Children, God is teaching you a very simple truth that the world is afraid to tell you. That is this. You're not, by virtue of being a child, 
lovable. You can be very unlovable. I was an unlovable child. I don't know how my parents loved me. The Bible teaches a very simple truth. That obedient children are a blessing to their parents and disobedient children bring sorrow. When you bring sorrow to your parents because of your actions, it's your fault, not God's. It is called cause and effect. Well, let me read on since you think I'm being too tough. I thought I would have heard a lot more amen in there. Maybe some of those adults are a little bit more unruly than their children are. How about this one? A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. What's the point? The point is that laziness leads to poverty, but hard work pays off. Now listen, I understand sometimes it doesn't. But maybe you're struggling financially because you made some bad decisions in your life. And maybe the best psychology you can have is to go look in the mirror and take responsibility for your own actions. Maybe. Maybe not. But Proverbs teaches us, why would you think that you can cheat your way through life, through school, and God bless you? I didn't study at all for this test. God helped me to ace it. Why would he do that? Some of you were praising Sully when the pilot landed the plane in the, what was it, the Hudson or the East River? Hudson. Got a lot of New Yorkers in here. I'm from New York, you know. Okay. Anyway, right, Miamians, don't they always talk trash to us about our teams as New Yorkers? Sorry. I, get, I digress. He landed that plane. You know who didn't land the plane? The sluggard. You know who landed the plane? The guy who went to school and learned how to land planes. You say, are you saying God didn't land that plane? Absolutely not. I'm saying he used the best person in the plane to land it. He didn't land the bum in the back. Come on now. Get with me. Cause and effect. Don't blame God. Your life might be where it is because of you. Proverbs goes on, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. This is in the Bible. In other words, what the Bible teaches us is that the sluggard is a poor employee and he only brings bitterness to his employer in the end. In other words, millennials, I'm a millennial, so lest you think I'm picking on you, I'm part of this. But when we, saw so use that, we go into our interviews dressed in sweatpants and a Cincinnati Reds jersey and talk on our phone in the middle of an interview, why would anyone want to hire you? Would you want to leave that person with your money? I wouldn't. Walk into an interview and start asking about the money and asking about what, how much time we can get off. You want to get the job, walk in and tell the manager, I heard Mike Rose say this, walk in and say this, I will be early, I will not take, I will not take advantage of this job, I will stay late, I will do the things nobody else wants to do, and in two years I'll have your job. That's the way to interview. But if you're a sluggard, 
You come in 30 minutes late? Oh, well, God's getting back at me because I didn't get the promotion. No, man. It's because you're a sluggard. You know what a sluggard is? The Bible uses the word sloth. It's this guy right here. Here, I'm going to leave him right here just to keep you guys in mind. I want this to be fresh in your mind. You might be, this is you. <laughs> on your couch. Watching Netflix. Yeah. Make a difference. Do something. Take a risk. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. What's the point here? God rewards those who love him and who love others with their charity. Maybe the reason why you don't have is because you don't give. Man, I'm preaching today, am I? I mean... Now I'm going to turn, I'm going to just go sit down there because I don't hear enough amen in. You guys are all tired from the dancing, right? Okay. Okay, but there's cause and effect. But sometimes, sometimes things happen in our lives and there's no good reason for it. The father who's gunned down in front of his children when he's bringing home groceries because somebody thought they could take his phone and a couple, couple $20 bills. I'm saying God is in control of that. And I'm saying God knows better than we do. Mistake number three. This is the one I want to end on this morning. Don't get excited. I got a lot. When people experience evil or suffering, they may incorrectly assume that God is not in control. Now listen, in Scripture, this is the big one. In the book of Job, the Bible tells us that God told the three friends of Job, the Bible tells us that God told Job to intercede on their behalf because of the wickedness that they had committed, that they did not speak rightly about God. When you read the three friends of Job, you might have a lot of sympathy with what they're saying. Job, God is good. He rewards good. Evil's happening in your life. The reason why evil's happening in your life is because you've done something wicked. Stop doing whatever that wicked thing is. Repent of it, and God will do good in your life again. I heard somebody say one time that how we die is a reflection of how we live. What should I conclude about the crucifixion? Speak truthfully about wickedness and God's control thereof. How do I do that? You go to his word. If you have your Bibles, turn in them with me to Job 31, 1 through 4. Job 31, 1 through 4. While you're turning there, I'll just read this last passage of Job in the last chapter. Here's what God told these friends. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, 
as my servant Job had. I want you to remember that because we're going to see how Job speaks about God in the midst of evil and suffering in his life. Now, maybe some of you don't know the story of Job. By the way, it's Job, it's not Job. It's Job. Job was a righteous man. In fact, the Bible tells us that God looked at Job and God called him upright. God called him a God-fearer. In other words, Job was, by human standards and by divine judgment, a good person. In other words, the best the world had to offer at the time. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I know enough of you to say, I haven't met the best the world has to offer. None of us are the best the world has to offer. None of us. We've all got our issues. But the Bible says about Job, he was the best. He was the Mother Teresa of his day. And he had accumulated a lot of wealth and a lot of beautiful children. And he had homes and he had a wife and he had cattle. That, that's, cattle's like having a, a Maybach. It's like having a, in those days, it's like having a, a, big, a big bank account. He had a lot of cattle. He had a lot of sheep. And in one fell swoop, God took it all away. He took it away by moral evil. A group came, killed his servants. A group of bandits came and killed his servants and took his livestock. His children were eating and celebrating in their homes. And a tornado, a natural evil tornado came and wiped away the house and took away his children. Eventually, Job would lose his own health. So much so that when his, three son, when his three friends had heard about him and came to meet him, they didn't even recognize him. So his material wealth, the love of his family, and his health was all taken from him. Boy, if there's a person in the Bible that is an object that, de that definitely contradicts health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, it's this right here. Job had faith, great faith, loved God, had so much, and God took it away. Why? Scripture's silent. Job appeals to God. Listen to what he says. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He's saying, look at how clean I am. Not only do I not commit adultery and break your commandment, I don't even do it with my eyes. What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high for this? It's not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity. This is what we say. Bad things happen to bad people, but they don't. And Job has lost everything and says, God, I deserve better from you. I'm good. Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? There'll be times when you're there in your life where you wonder why this great evil is happening to you when all you've ever done is love God. But you see, here's the problem. 
Job thinks that his relationship with God is one of merit and not one of grace. The Lord gives and he takes away according to his own prerogative. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He goes on, if I've walked with falsehood and my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot is stuck on my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. More of the same. Verse 35, he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. In other words, he feels like God's not even hearing him now. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job doesn't know what he did. His adversary hasn't even told him what he's doing. In fact, we know in the story that his adversary is the devil. The Bible and Peter says that the devil, our adversary, prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And at the beginning of the book of Job, when God asked Job, where have you been? He said, roaming to and fro. In other words, looking for someone to destroy. For what reason? To simply shake his fist at God. To get glory. You see, Satan wants glory in the midst of your cancer. Satan wants glory in the midst of your divorce. Satan wants to look up in God and say, see... See all this chaos I've caused in the midst of your cosmos? Give me the glory. Don't let him win. Well, Job answers, or God answers Job. This goes on and on. And then finally, the Lord will defend himself. I want you to know that at the very beginning of this, Job is do, God is doing a most gracious thing by even answering the question. Here's what he said. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who is it who comes in with such stupidity as to think they'll correct me, the Almighty God? Darkens counsel. His counsel's without light, without knowledge. He says, dress for action like a man. In other words, get your clothes on. Get ready. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? 
in verse 39, 19, and 25, it just goes on for chapter after chapter from 38 all the way through 41. And I just selected my favorite parts. But I love this one, 39, 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. In other words, what he's saying is, I gave, I decided to make the horse not be afraid of anything and to run into battle while you're afraid of everything because I decided it. Did you make the horse? Did you make him beautiful and majestic? He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword upon him. Rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. And it goes on and on. Jesus says, look at the lilies of the field, how they're clothed. Yet Solomon in, not, in all of his splendor wasn't clothed like one of these. God is in control of everything from the greatest to the least. Here's what happens. When we come to God at the moment of greatest need, the question when we ask him, God, why have you let me suffer? Why did you give me this disease? Take away my loved ones. God's answer to us is a question. And the question is, who are you, O oh man, to question the Almighty God? You say, I don't like that. Find another book. Because this one tells us that we are but the clay, and he is the potter, and he will make the vessels how he chooses, some vessels for honor and some for dishonor, all to his glory. Those that he makes beautiful to his honor is to the glory of his grace, and those vessels he makes to dishonor are to the glory of his justice. Who are we but the clay? Does not the potter have the right to take from the same lump one clay for honorable use and one part for dishonorable use? Of course he does. But you see, we believe that we are special. But our specialness only comes from being created in the image of God. Here's what Job says in the end. Job answers the Lord and he says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's the question God asked him. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. He says this. I only heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The answer to all of life's troubles, all of life's suffering, is the knowledge of God. But you know, the Bible tells us that the sufferings of this life aren't worth comparing with the glories of the next. And that if you know Christ, ultimately, all evil will be wiped away. There will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more poverty. In this life, there will be those things. But to know Christ is to know the resolution of the afterlife and to know that in the end, God will dwell with man in perfect peace and harmony and he will finally and firmly destroy the evil that exists today. So what is the answer to the problem of evil? The Bible doesn't give us the complete answer. We don't know why God allows evil to exist. But we must never charge him with evil and humbly trust him in all things. Let's pray. Father and Lord God, you are most glorious and it is a wonderful thing to come into your house and to stand in the midst of your glory. Lord, it is wonderful, wonderful to be put in our place by your word. But God, as we leave here today, let us be comforted. To those who know you, to those who have said, I trust you, God, and your son, Jesus, and I will live after you. I will live like Jesus. I will love you with all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, my body. To those of us who love our neighbor as ourselves. Your word tells us that you work all things together for good. Lord, there's so much suffering. But give us the greatest comfort today of knowing that this suffering is not forever. And that the Lord who promised that he would deliver us. The Lord who crucified his own son and defeated Satan and death on that day, will finally bring it to consummation when Jesus Christ returns. And so, Lord, I'm pleading today that those who don't know you today will return to you, will respond to the call so that they might know that in the midst of this suffering, you are a holy God who loves them and who will bring them into final glory. Father, we love you. Amen.